The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, top-notch transfers as Neymar seeks a new move and top-notch transfers as golf-loving Gareth Bale selects a new club and eyes up the green in Los Angeles. We ask, is Ronaldo de Roma the rumour you'd most like to see happen? Recall when Warnock parked his Jags against Arsenal and hear about another of our favourite World Cups. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And glad you could join us, uh, listener. It's Monday the 27th of June as I sit here with uh, Dom Fifield, James Horncastle and Tom Williams. Hello to you all. Good morning. Hello. Hello, hello, morning. James. Just just to bring you up to date because we've, we've had a little bit of chat before that introduction. Tom's in a friend's private cinema looking quite evil because you're in a kind of like one of those leather bound kind of revolving chairs and surrounded by darkness and it's mastermind, and isn't he? Look, ah, yeah, looking, there we go. Looking, Thanks, looking a lot more evil than I thought I was. I thought I might look a little bit evil, but it was only when the Zoom call initiated a few seconds ago that right. the, the full extent of my of my evilness was. Uh, well, if you if you put a torch clear. under your chin, that would really complete the effect. So I'll see if I, I'll see so, if I can rustle one up. Yeah, I'll Jack Lang was supposed to be on this podcast, but it, it seems ah. that Tom has managed to <laughs> get rid of him. <laughs> He's lifted his finger and sent his sent a, a hit squad out or something. Yeah, Jack Lang not with us today, but will be with us soon uh, on an upcoming podcast. I'll be looking forward to talking to Jack again. So far today, we've established, though, that what you think you know about Gus Poyet's departure <laughs> from Brighton isn't actually true. Dom. <laughs> you really want me to talk about Poogate? <laughs> is that what they're calling it? That's what they called it, yeah, at the time. Yeah, is yeah. They, did they? Right? Know, this okay. is fairly. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised that you haven't you haven't uh, heard this already. But the suggestion that has, that uh, it was a dirty protest in the Crystal Palace changing room at the playoff semi final in 2013, and when the Palace players got in, the the toilets were in a bit of a state. Palace used it at the time as a source of motivation to go out and win two 0 thanks to Wilfred Zaha's brace. But it turned out, as subsequently revealed, I think it was Paddy McCarthy, the Palace, he's now the under-23s manager, but he was a member of the squad, playing squad back then. He told a, an audience at the, in Croydon Fairfield Halls, I think, at one of the club events, that actually it was the coach driver who'd had a bit of an accident as he arrived at the ground and had snuck into the changing room prior to the team actually getting in there and um, dropped his load, so to speak. Yeah, dumps like a truck, truck, truck. <laughs> Palace like what, what, what? Yeah. Indeed. Um, thanks, thanks, James. So, because the original story was that Gus Poyet had, had uh... I don't think it was ever Gus Poyet. I, I think it was, it, it was, it was never Gus Poyet. Unfortunately, was the one that had to front up at the end of the evening when it was put to all the next couple of days. And he actually, I think he got so angry that you know, he thought that, that somebody at the club had done this and had motivated the opposition that he sent an email around which saying who, who did this and kicked up a bit of a fuss. And I think that was just the, that tipped him over the edge sort of with, with Tony Bloom at the right. time. Was it, Tony? it would have been Tony Bloom. It would have been Tony Bloom at the time. And right. I think the relationship fractured thereafter. <laughs> I don't think he accused Tony Bloom of doing it either, by the way. I just, you know, it was just one of those things. A big misunderstanding. I mean, we, we await the athletic long lead on this with, with great interest. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Okay, well, we're off to an interesting start, but I I thought it was worth setting the record straight on that. James, have you been busy since we last saw each other? Yeah, football's kept me busy, busy. yeah. There's a lot going on. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on in Italy, isn't there? We'll We'll touch perhaps on some of those things, not least one or two interesting transfer stories, uh, potential bits of business. In transfer terms, though, I think, Tom, we should start with you as you daub your bedsheet with Wales Golf Los Angeles in honour of Gareth Bale. He's agreed a one-year deal with LAFC in MLS. How excited are you? Yeah, I think this is a good move. There was a lot of talk about Gareth Bale potentially going to Cardiff, which would have been the sort of the romantic option, I suppose. He's a Cardiff lad. He's never played, you know, professional football in Wales and with the the World Cup looming, it it might have been nice to have him playing at home regularly. But at the same time, as kind of romantic as that would have been, is Gareth Bale with his with his slightly creaky body you know, being lined up week after week in one of the world's most physical leagues with all the attention he would have generated for a team who finished 18th in the championship last season. So it's not like he would have been slotting into a a team who were one of the promotion favourites. This feels like quite a neat fit. The timings of the MLS season work out quite nicely. You know, even if LA, you know, make it through to the MLS Cup final He'll still be clear by the time the World Cup comes around. And I think it'll probably do him good, you know, change of scene. Golfing opportunities will be off the charts as well, which I'm sure was was a factor in it. And it means that, you know, he can work on his fitness and and get a bit of game time under his belt uh, in in view of the World Cup, which is obviously his big objective and, and, you know, arguably perhaps the last big objective of his whole career. Perhaps so. Not so much Vincent Tan as Getter Tan then for Gareth Bale in Los Angeles, where he'll be teaming up, James, with former Italy captain Giorgio Collini. Yeah, who went there because Italy are not going to the World Cup. Yeah. (laughs) That was his decision because he said, look, I would have probably stayed another year at Juventus, you know, had Italy uh, qualified for, for Qatar. But because they didn't, I thought, why not take this opportunity to go play in MLS at LAFC? So it's kind of interesting how... You know, as, as Tom says, the calendar works really well in terms of maintaining getting players fit for this tournament. Uh, I think both will be available for, what, for the derby against the LA Galaxy on July 8th, and it runs right through. But I, I thought Chiellini's way of looking at it quite different to Bale's in that um, he felt he would have needed to still be playing in a top five league in Europe in order to, to be ready and prepared for a World Cup. And Bale seems to take a slightly different view. I don't think either, either of them are mm. wrong. I think, um, you know, I, I think it, it could be a, a very good preparation for, for Bale. Right, it's interesting. LAFC finished ninth in the Western Conference last season, but they are currently atop the standings as we record this. Oh, Man City have now signed Calvin Phillips from Leeds. Dom, can you explain that one? How does that work? Will it work? Well, it, it replaces Fernandinho in, in, in City's options. A young player of a potential still. I think they'll think they can use him in various different ways. He, he presumably will relieve some of the workload off Rodri um, at his side. Double pivots. He can play him as a holding midfielder, possibly as a midfielder that, that is more box to box as well. So they've got just offers them loads and loads of options, and and it it shows the caliber of the player really. If Pep Guardiola's after you, then um, 
he's clearly done plenty right at Leeds United in the last few years. I'm interested to see what Leeds do next. You know, presumably they, I know they're getting a, a young kid from City uh, in a sort of separate deal, but presumably they'd need another midfielder coming in as well to replace a player that's been fairly talismanic for them over the last few years. What do you make of City's business so far with Haaland in, and uh, possibly Mark Cucurella from Brighton, who's at least strongly linked with the move to the Etihad? I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? As Dom says, Phillips is the replacement for Fernandinho, in, in, at least in terms of the squad makeup. But I, I, I think he, you know, he might end up playing a little bit further forward. It was Bielsa who sort of decided he was going to be that number six in front of the defence, but he played in more advanced positions previously. And we saw with England when he sort of broke into the team ahead of the Euro last year that you know he, he can be played as more of a box-to-box player. Holland could well be the kind of missing piece in the in the jigsaw, not that City have really looked like they've been missing very much in, in recent seasons. So yeah, very solid. And if and if Kukureda comes in or or another left back, then it gives them a little bit extra depth on the, on that side of the pitch. So yeah, so far so far so good. Okay. Gabriel Jesus, his move to Arsenal has now been confirmed for forty five million. There've been divergent voices about this transfer. Some see it as the missing piece for Mikel Arteta. Others have suggested that Jesus is not the player. This is not the player that you're looking for, Arsenal. Uh, where do you stand, James Horncastle? Are you willing to speak out on thorny Arsenal questions? <laughs> well, look, he's a player that Mikel Arteta knows, trusts, so it makes a lot of sense to play with Premier League experience. But I look at him and I don't see a leading man. And I still think Arsenal lack that up front. I think if they're going into the season with Eddie Nketiah as their main front man, then that's that's very courageous, very bold. But does that kind of give you confidence that they can get into the Champions League places? In some respects, aside from the personal relationship between Arteta and Jesus, I am a little bit surprised that he's chosen to go there, not because Arsenal aren't a big club, but because I thought he would go to a club that is in the Champions League. And I think at, some, at one point that was maybe a doubt as to whether Jesus would actually go to the Emirates because they couldn't offer that. I have been impressed by their transfer business. I mean, if they get Rafinha as well, that's mm. <laughs> that's very exciting. How real are the links with uh, a potentially very strong leading man from Italy, Scamacca? Oh, they are uh, legitimate. There have been um, conversations, at least with, with Scamacca's agent, about that. You know, he would cost... Upwards of 40 million euro. The question is, after getting Gabriel Jesus, can Arsenal uh, afford to sign another player like that, particularly with them having made a bid, as The Athletic reported, for Rafinha? Um, I'm not sure they could do all three. There's Mm. some doubts to whether they could do two. (laughs) Um, But I think it does... You know, underline the, the the power and wealth of these Premier League teams. That you know, even again missing out on the Champions League, it's it's not stopping Arsenal from from spending the kind of money that other teams in the continent on the continent who perhaps would have been in for Jesus. Uh, yeah, they they can't afford even if they're champions, if they're Champions League teams. Daniel Taylor wrote a column for us about how the top six are having to sell to each other because no one on the continent can afford to pay the wages that um, Man City have been playing, paying Jesus or Man City have been paying Sterling. So, but yeah, I, I think on Arsenal, just to go back finally, I think you can hold these two points simultaneously, which is they improved last year. Uh, it was encouraging, uh, but they missed their opportunity to get into the top four. And I still find it hard to to see who they would 
unseat in the top four, particularly because I think Spurs have a more experienced, better manager. They've done equally impressive transfer business. You know, I, I suppose Man United and Chelsea are the unknowns at the moment, mm. really. So let's see how it plays out. All right. Chelsea, Don, who are approaching this delicate transfer window with <laughs> the unusual figure of Todd Burley. Renowned uh, sporting director, Todd How's Bowley. How's that working out so far? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, it's quite a situation at, at Chelsea. And then Monday morning, they, they announced that Petr Cech is also leaving the club uh, at the end of the week. So when you consider that they're... I mean, Bruce Buck, Eugene Tenenbaum, the former director, has gone. Obviously, Roman Abramovich is obviously off the scene. Guy Lawrence, the chief executive, has left. Christophe Lollichon, the goal- long-serving goalkeeping coach, has gone. Marina Granovskaya, who has been negotiating all their transfers over the last decade, has, is going. And now Petr Cech is also leaving the building. That It's a very inexperienced board and hierarchy to instigate what is quite a significant summer of strengthening at the club. They need a revamp. They, they've got no centre-halves. Of, well, I mean, they have centre-halves, but they're losing Rudiger. They're losing Christensen at the end of the month. The Lukaku situation obviously needs filling. So they, there's going to be quite a lot of business that has to be done and we're right. they're relying upon an interim sporting director who whose sporting knowledge is largely in baseball so he's learning on the hoof so it is a tri- intriguing one and it and and James is absolutely right they are one of the great unknowns i think at the moment there'll be people fretting that they're not going to they might be the ones that get displaced by a resurgent arsenal but i do think chelsea tend to find a way so and that given the mm. level of investment in, involved in the takeover they will i'm sure they will throw money at it so let's see where they are on September the 2nd when we know what their squad is, is made up of. Well, with Christensen and Rudiger both leaving, defensive needs are, are top of their priority list, I think, and a lot of talk about a move for Mateus de Ligt out of Juventus. Uh, Chelsea's proposal to... Well, Chelsea's offer of a swap for Tino Werner, who's almost as, as likely to prevent goals <laughs> himself, uh, has not met with much approval in Turin, though, James. <laughs> what I like about uh, this offer is, so Juventus have got uh, Morato, and Morato is on loan from Atletico Madrid, and they're bulking it, paying the, the option to make the deal permanent. You know, Morato, one of these former Chelsea players who a little bit like Werner, a little bit Lukaku, just it, it hasn't worked out for them. Number 37 on, on uh, Granovskaya's worst <laughs> transfer list <laughs> in Football 365. All right, okay. Yeah, Lukaku's 36, I think. But yes, go on. Yeah. I wouldn't say they're, they're carbon copies of each other, Morata and Werner, but you know, sort of left side, quick, best with, you know, when they're, when they're facing goal. Uh, yeah, I think... I think from Juventus's point of view, they want cash if they are to sell Delict. They would like to extend his contract. I think it would be a blow for them, really, in a year in which Delict has shown himself to be a real leader for the club. Um, okay, it was a disappointing year. They didn't win anything for the first time since 2011. And as much as people on social media think that Delict has flopped since he's been at Juventus because every now and again he handles the ball in the penalty area, he's been pretty outstanding. I would say. So to lose him in the same summer when Chiellini has gone off to LAFC, that's, uh, I wouldn't say it's problematic, but it's, 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 it's not ideal. So it would take quite the offer from Chelsea to, to be able to persuade Juventus um, to, to sell him. And, you know, we all know that Harry Maguire is the most expensive centre-back in the world. So, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be cheap. 
No. I think um, Tom Williams wants to chime in from his evil lair. <laughs> yeah, if, if I may. Um, no, I just... It's quite... Uh, it feels like quite a retro touch to have um, Chelsea's new owner, like, signing the players. It's the sort of thing we've not seen for a while. It kind of makes you think of Ron Nodes or Sam Hamam or you know, one of the other slightly more... <laughs> eccentric English club owners of, of yesteryear and, and, and why not you know football clubs particularly the good ones are so slick and professional these days I say more club owners with almost zero knowledge of uh, transfer markets getting their hands dirty and let's just you know let's let's see how we go Excellent uh, Tom uh, might the reason that Juve want cash be that they are saving up for Neymar and how real other stories concurrent with one saying that PSG are keeping the Brazilian that they have actually asked him to go and find himself a new deal somewhere else it's very awkward for PSG because I mean I, I think they would like to sell him um, I think if anyone put you know put a, a sizable offer on the table for Neymar they would they would gladly accept it but they can't say that publicly mm. the main obstacle to, to Neymar leaving PSG is that he's under contract it emerged this week that an extension in his contract has been triggered. So he's now under contract until 2027. He obviously has enormous wage demands. He is miles away from the end of his contract. So the transfer fee is going to be pretty astronomical as well. And there are very, very few clubs in world football who can afford to pay that that sort of money. The only, you know, the only names who are being cited in, in the French sports media as, as potential destinations are Man United, Chelsea and Newcastle. And of course, you know, Newcastle are now a convenient stalking horse for any big name player who is unsettled or, you know, or who, who might be moving on. But I don't think Neymar has ever expressed any great enthusiasm about the idea of, of, of playing in England. Um, so it looks like he will be he will be staying put. But there was a report yesterday from RMC Sport here uh, saying that, you know, he, he wouldn't be totally against the idea of leaving. But it's just very hard to, to, to imagine, you know, what the kind of ideal move would be for him and, and which of the, the very small number of, of elite clubs who could give him enormous wages and Champions League football and nice weather and, you know, all the rest of it. How likely any of them w- would be to actually want to try and sign him. So I, I suspect he's probably going to stay foot, but he is very much... I mean, not even just second fiddle, you know, now that now that Messi's there as well and Mbappe is, is now clearly not only the star, but the kind of de facto, um, yeah, you know, sporting director, sport, yeah. sporting director. He's he's very much third fiddle and he was very disappointing last season. Looked a little bit better towards the end of the campaign, you know, by which time it was, you know, too late to really make any any massive impact. I think the hope for, from PSG's perspective is that, you know, he's, he's obviously got the World Cup at the end of the year. This will probably be his last World Cup. And so if he can kind of get himself fit and firing and, and, and hit the season, you know, hit the season running, then, then perhaps he can, you know, he can remind us of the of, of the wonderful player he, you know, he was slash is slash was slash is. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, I think the whole thing just 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 shows how how ultimately underwhelming his, his time at PSG has been and, and, you know, how how he has slipped down at the pecking order in terms of the, the superstar names. I think what we need is Naycastle, don't we? Naycastle United. That's, I mean, the hashtag writes itself, doesn't it? We need the geopolitical drama that is the star of uh, of the Qatar project going to become the star of a Saudi Arabia project. It was, that would be... Let's let's make it happen. Come on. You get Mirandina involved with a little sort of retro <laughs> nod. Have Neymar prancing around in like some sort of like 1980s Newcastle kit. I like it, Tom. I'm sure everybody does. It, in the meantime, though, are we already at Neymar's last World Cup? How old is he? 
Well, but he said himself, didn't he, quite recently, oh, that he? he, you know, isn't going to carry on playing football for very much longer. Hmm. You know, he'd even suggested that, I mean, and this is before he, I think it was before he'd signed this enormous new contract at PSG, but at one point he was suggesting that he, he might play this World Cup and then that would be it. And he would just, you know, retire from the game altogether. I mean, that's no longer uh, on the table, I don't think. Right. But, yeah, I mean, you know, who knows? But Will he, he go back he, to acting, he, do you feel? <laughs> Go go back to acting. Back to acting. Yeah, he had a part in Action Thriller XXX, didn't he? Am I getting? Am I? Was this a fever dream that I had? <laughs> it's true. He was in XXX Return of Xander Cage. Specifically, he features in a scene playing alongside Samuel L. Jackson. In terms of exposition, it's a meaty scene. They're in a Chinese restaurant, and the pair sit down together. And there's there's about five minutes of talking Samuel L. Jackson just basically sits there and eats Chinese food and does Samuel L. Jackson things I warmly recommend this movie to absolutely nobody that's my pitch <laughs> always was a bit of spying on a salesman so what do you say I'm not a hero I'm a jogador de futebol my bad so I'll leave you be there <laughs> who said there's no such thing as a free meal <laughs> but anyway, that that's a little brief uh, cameo from from Neymar. Moving on, because uh, we sh- we might as well tick some more transfer boxes before we get onto other things. First of all, Neymar to Juve is a story that I saw and cannot unsee. Tell me, there's no truth in that. I'd be very wary of that report, James. I mean, I would say nothing okay. is impossible. Juventus keep showing this, don't they? I mean. I would have probably said the same about them signing yeah, Cristiano signed Ronaldo, Ronaldo in 2018. Mm. But uh, I think, you know, Pogba and his weight is already quite big ask on the top of signing Dusan Vlajevic for 70, 75 million back in January. Mm. Di Maria is obviously free, but his wages will cost a bit. And, you know, he's been kind of giving the old lady the cold shoulder for a while, hasn't he? I mean, they've got quite frustrated with him. Made overture after overture. Yeah, and, you know, he's kept her waiting. Um, mm. But now it looks like he is going to uh, join in matrimony with uh, with the old lady for a couple of years, or, or, or maybe just a single season. Yeah, it looks like quite an exciting lineup, doesn't it? With uh, Di Maria there, Pogba as well, Chiesa back from injury, and, and Vlavic with the benefits of a full preseason, etc. Yeah, well, well, we'll see how it all works out for them. Romelu Lukaku back in Serie A, of course, at Inter as well. One of the reasons that I guess that enabled Juve to bring in Ronaldo back in 2018 was the favourable tax laws for foreign workers, which is a regime that's still in place. And is that the reason that I'm now seeing stories about Cristiano Ronaldo returning to Serie A, but a little bit further south at Jose Mourinho's Roma? <laughs> yeah, this, this story has been doing the rounds in Italy over the weekend. Because there's been some like you know WhatsApp, WhatsApps, that have, uh, voice memos that have been uh, sort of forwarded from uh, one Roman to another uh, about you know the prospects of some big announcement. I think on June 29th, and given how well the the owners of Roma kind of kept the Mourinho appointment hush hush, uh, they're all thinking, ah, could it be Cristiano? You mentioned this, the, the tax breaks, um, which have slightly changed since Cristiano was first moved to Italy, but um, he would still be able to uh, get some physical benefits, uh, I suppose, from moving back to, to Italy as Pogba has been able to as well, which makes it easier for Juventus to to absorb some, some of the wages. Uh, I think it would be, I mean, 
this this rumor about Cristiano going to Roma has kind of been dismissed out of hand um, in Italy. But uh, you know, it's clear. I mean, we reported that Jorge Mendes had a conversation about with Todd Bowley about a number of things, not just Cristiano, but um, seems there's been talks with Bayern Munich as well. Mm. So it's, it, it feels a little bit like last summer for, with Cristiano, right, when there were all these kind of rumours swirling around him and in the end he went, he left Juventus for, for Manchester United. But we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, it would be, yeah, it would be quite something. I mean, for, for, from an English point of view, for Tammy Abraham as well, just like, you know, Tammy is the, the leading man at Roma. He's had an incredibly successful season. He's mm. adored by, uh, by Roma fans. They don't need any help selling season tickets. I think they've already sold more than they, they, they have done since they, they won the league back in 2001. So, you know, it, it would be a big surprise. And I would be asking how Roma could afford it. But there we go. Mm. Tom, the, the Chelsea story meanwhile for Ronaldo? I'm not surprised his name cropped up in a conversation, but I think that was probably Todd Bowley making introductions to fairly influential agents with on the, on the, on the circuit more than anything else. I think it's a sensible thing for him to do because he's going to have to work with these guys for the next, well, certainly in the in the short term um, before they appoint a, a sporting director at Chelsea. So I, I, I can't see Thomas Tuchel sanctioning Cristiano Ronaldo's arrival at Chelsea and I, I do think for all that we're we're laughing about Bowley you know having this new plaything and, and adding names to his wish list willy-nilly I think he's actually getting more of an influence from Thomas Tuchel will be on, on, on Chelsea's transfer market this summer and it will be it's almost going down the the Klopp Guardiola route of allowing the manager to to pinpoint the players that he wants for his team. Right. You don't see Ronaldo as a no, Thomas Tuchel no, no. player necessarily. <laughs> I understand. Okay. Jason Robson wants to know, James, uh, briefly, where do you see Zaniolo ending up? <laughs> uh, well, at this stage, I'd be surprised, pleasantly surprised, if he was still a Roma player uh, in the summer. Oh. Yeah, I think it's 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 quite clear that Roma are open to, to offers for him. I think he's a player that would suit Premier League football. He's been compared with kind of Frank Lampard, Steven Gerrard, um, yeah, by his youth coaches. It's not by us in the media, but actually by people who've worked with with Zaniolo, um, who incidentally have never worked with Steven Gerrard or uh, Frank Lampard, but that's <laughs> by the by. Um, and um, and look, I mean, he, he scored the winning goal in the Conference League final. P- people say, okay, is he still the same Zaniolo before he tore the crucial ligaments in both of his knees? Um, I think, you know, he's he's needed this year to get back up to speed. He's played a full season. And yeah, he has been decisive in, in, in big games. And he's a really exciting talent, you know, in terms of just hard running, taking on players, can play out wide, can play midfield, can play off a striker, scores goals. As much as I would like him to stay in City, yeah, I think if he was to go to a club like Tottenham or something, it, uh, it'd be fun to see what he could he could do under, under Conte. Mm. So let's see. Let's. Okay, just to wrap things up, listener, if you're keen to move on from the transfers, Sven Botman is on his way from Lille to Newcastle, highly rated centre-half for around €40 million. And Palace, Dom, who's this hotly rated derby winger who they're in for? Well, they signed Malcolm Ebiowi from um, 
Derby County on a five-year contract. He'll join on the 1st of July. He's just a, he's a teenager from South London originally and broke into the Derby team last year. Uh, I feel a bit sorry for Derby, to be honest. I mean, they're obviously losing a lot of good young talent and they're in a horrible situation at the moment, waiting for this takeover to go through. A lot of talent there sort of right to be picked, really, unfortunately. Um but uh, I'm interested to see how Liam Rossini does in that in that role as well, taking over from from Wayne Rooney in the week. Liam was very close to joining Blackpool just prior to that, but, but I think he he's desperate to turn things around at Derby. He can he senses that there's an opportunity there, and there's a, obviously a massive club that needs to be picked up. He's a coach of huge talent, and hopefully a manager of huge talent as well. Now that he's going to be working there, by the look of things without Rooney for the long term. So fingers crossed he does well. Mm. Okay, Rooney, who uh, informed the club he was leaving on Friday, which was that, I'm not sure if that was a bit of a a shock. Thankfully, the kind of yin and yang global balance of grizzled former Man United attacking threats in management was maintained by the arrival of Carlos Tevez at uh, Rosario Central. Who who was as surprised as I was at Tevez popping up as a kind of top-flight manager? Yeah, it is a surprise. I think whenever you get a player who is sort of renowned for being like very scrappy and angry, like Carlos Tevez, mm. and they go into management, it's kind of hard to it's hard to know how it's going to work out. But then there are successful, you know, there are successful examples of that. You suspect that you know Who? we're going to see the same. Well, I mean, I guess it's sort of early days, but you know, someone like Gattuso. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, when you get like a hothead uh, installed on uh, on the bench, the kind of instinctive reaction is to think that it's going to be a recipe for disaster. But there are ways of of channeling that sort of that, that fire and that style. I mean, I guess Diego Simeone is the is the classic example of that. Um, and Roberto I, Mancini, I would say as well, potentially. Yeah, exactly. One of the most hot headed people as a player. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, so I would have thought that you know the kind of the, the the Carlos Tevez we see on the touchline will you know will be akin to the Carlos Tevez we saw on the pitch. You know, a kind of a bundle of energy, someone very expressive, someone who sort of kicks every kicks every ball. But that's that's not to say that he won't necessarily be a success. And man, the thought of Carlos Tevez leading a team into battle in like you know the Rosario Derby or something is uh, is quite an appetising one, purely just for you know fans of. Um, Agro, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed, indeed. Tevez at Rosario Central, yet another reason to be excited about next season. Of course, there's uh, loads of football coming up between now and then, or, or some anyway. And next up, we'll be talking about England. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Charlotte, feeling confident today, me. And your selection? Just start up front. Blue number nine and 26, uh, 17 as well, just behind the front two. Like. Excellent. Good luck. Blue number seven, unlucky sir. Oh, Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups is hard, but fortunately, we've made our bet builder easy. Simply choose a top pre-built bet builder, click add to bet slip, select your stake, and done. Paddy power. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. Be This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. Listener, last Thursday, we were looking ahead to... uh... The Lionesses Friday night friendly with Netherlands, as you know, it went well. Woof! 5-1 for England's women's team at Ellen Road against the Netherlands. England playing under a Dutch manager. Netherlands, interestingly, with an English one. England playing in orange and the Dutch in white shirts. Not sure how all of that, well, the shirts business at least, came about. But uh, it continues a very nice build-up to the upcoming Euros from uh, Serena Wiegmann's side as they now have a record that reads under her played 13, 111, drawn to 80 goals scored, just three conceded. Also on the England front, the under 19 Euros have been continuing. And excitingly, James, England are going to be facing Italy in the semi finals on Tuesday in Slovakia. Yeah. If the women's team are the Lionesses, are the under-19s, are they the Lion Cubs or something? I imagine they are. Anyway, they've, they've had three wins out of three now. They had a 1-0 victory over Israel on Saturday with uh, Man City's Liam Delap. The only goal, a fine strike it was, after the keeper, the Israeli keeper, had helpfully passed it straight uh, to one of uh, Liam's teammates who, who offered the ball to Liam, who, uh, who, who placed it delightfully. Hmm. England are the only team out of the eight sides at the tournament yet to concede a goal. The other semi-final is France against Israel. That's us up to date on the under-19s. That's on Tuesday, that other semi-final, France against Israel. The final will be on Friday, if you fancy a bit of that. Yeah, France going really well, three from three in the group stage, spearheaded by uh, Loom Chauna, uh, who is a Chad-born striker, came through the the very highly rated academy at Rennes. I think he's scored in all of their games so far. Um, and yeah, tipped for tipped for big things as every player at this tournament is, and you know invariably we know how that ends up. But for now, well, it's the tip for big things stage. It's 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 exciting. It is exciting. Sorry, that felt like it was, that was a real downer <laughs> yeah, no, on all these promising no. young players. But Italy have Marco Nasti up front. He's a horrible player to play against. <laughs> is that is that Nasty with an I? It is. What a name. And speaking of England, remember this. Yeah, that's right. It's the 27th of June today. Anniversary of the day that lives in infamy for England supporters. For on this day, not just that 2-1 victory for Iceland over England in Nice back in 2016, but also... It was the 27th of June that Germany beat England 4-1 in Bloemfontein in the 2010 World Cup. Two of England's most humbling defeats. And Dom, you were there for both of them. So were some of the players. It wasn't just me. I'm not, the, I'm not, <laughs> not down to me. <laughs> <laughs> were you also there at Molyneux the other day for, for Hungary for England nil? <laughs> They, they they wouldn't let me into another England game after <laughs> the match in Nice in 2016. Um, both of them absolutely horrendous for very different, well, not actually very different reasons, but the team was fairly incompetent on both both occasions. I mean, the Iceland game was worse, no. That was the one when Harry Kane was taking all the corners and that. 
I can't believe you said the famous commentary. I know you mean the Icelandic commentary, but <laughs> you want the Steve. What about Steve what McLaren's about Steve commentary? McLaren? <laughs> it's been the perfect response. You'd think that no problem. Start again. Keep dominating. Keep getting uh, pressure on the Iceland back four. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sig Thorson. Oh, oh my oh word! My oh. Tom. Am I right in saying you were also at that Iceland game and, and no doubt similarly displeased to see England come a cropper? <laughs> oh, yeah, heartbroken. Heartbroken. It was obviously such a positive tournament for the home nations in so many other ways. And, yeah, seeing England get, get knocked out <laughs> by Iceland in such humiliating fashion uh, two days on from having watched Wales qualify for the quarterfinals against Northern Ireland was, uh, yeah, a real, real, real blow. Real, real, real bitter pill to swallow. But yeah, it was. Um, it was. I mean, from a Welsh perspective, quite a, quite an amusing day, um, and was then followed by the sight of, of Roy Hodgson resigning immediately before his post-match press conference. And then the following day, and I suspect Dom, you were probably there as well. Um, Roy Hodgson being forced to appear at another press conference at England's base in in Chantilly, just just north of Paris, and sort of sitting down at the top table and saying, "I don't know why I'm here. I don't think I should be doing this press conference." And that was kind of his batting stance for the entire thing one of the most surreal press conferences i think i've ever been to that was the end of the that was the end of the hodgson era it, it was farcical on the, the day after in shanti you're right I, I sort of looking back in, with, with hindsight i can i understand what he was saying i mean we, we were asking him questions about the future of english football and he wasn't going to be a part of that future but i think when you've been in situ for for four years and and you've You've brought a, a team to a major tournament like that, and and they failed so so miserably and underwhelmed really throughout. We shouldn't kid ourselves that England played well really either. Of, well, certainly in, in 2014, likewise with Hodgson in Brazil, and and 2016, there were no highlights to any of it. It was just so oh, such a plod really, such a towards ignominy. Um, I, I suppose. He just looked broken that day. I actually quite enjoyed his re revival. Not obviously for when he came out to Palace into 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 management again. It was he did a great job there. But it was nice to see him revive and and almost you know he's been tarnished a bit with the Watford thing. But if he if he'd stopped at the end of Palace, it would have been a good time for him to go. And it would have he he had he had reestablished his reputation at that point because because England ultimately Iceland really haunted him for for a good while. Mm. Has it haunted you for a while, Dom? I don't know about that. I mean, it was it was an interesting evening to be at. It was it was interesting standing in the mix zone and watching England players shuffle through and and refuse to to contemplate what had just happened. I think only Wayne Rooney for about twenty seconds and Joe Hart slightly longer stopped in the mix zone. Everything else, everybody else just blanked us as, as they walked past. There was a real sense of everybody being completely shell shocked by the whole surprise at losing to Iceland and 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 that that's that sense of panic had been out on the pitch really uh, from the moment England trailed there was never any chance of England getting back into that game they they, they didn't know what they, they they'd lost all belief in themselves and you could almost you could take that back go back um, 6 years to Bloemfontein um I mean the optimistic England fans sort of seize upon the Frank Lampard disallowed goal right. which would have got which would have made England it 2-2 yeah yeah but even so, the gulf between those teams that that day was frightening, absolutely frightening. There was it was chaos with England, absolute chaos. They didn't know how to defend. They were ripped to pieces every time Germany came forward. God, that tournament was just for England was was horrific, really. I mean, 
Yeah, remember the, the, the game in Cape Town against Algeria, the, the, the nil-nil and, and Rooney... <laughs> well, and Rooney ends up leaving the pitch basically saying, well, that's, the that, thank you for your support and something like that, all sarcastic because the England fans have been booing. I mean, it was it was mind-numbingly awful. Um, <sighs> Who has a worse record of watching England, you or Mick Jagger, Dom? <laughs> I did go to Russia in 2018. I did see them get to a World Cup semi-final. So, uh, yeah, there yeah. have been some lowlights, haven't there? <laughs> mm. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a big turning point for England in terms of PR, that tournament, uh, Euro 2016, in that since then, England's approach with the media has been much more open. Um, and I think they learnt lessons from the way that Wales and Northern Ireland went about their media dealings during that tournament because... I remember covering England at Euro 2016 and, and trying to get a, a feel for what was happening behind the scenes, you know, what, what you guys are up to, what you're doing, and there was talk of a darts tournament. But we, we, weren't ever given any, um, we weren't ever given any details. I remember Joe Hart in particular, he, he gave a briefing to the written press uh, and he wouldn't answer questions about the darts tournament at all. He wouldn't answer a single... He, would conf- he confirmed, sure... There's a darts tournament, but that's all you get. You wouldn't tell us who was good, who was bad. It was just, you know, the, the drawbridge has been pulled up and you were like, the Welsh sides, the Northern Irish sides are having an absolute ball. Why, why, why do you have to be so sort of, you know, kind of cagey about things? Um, and the one kind of nod to sort of playfulness on that during that tournament was the lion. There was this cuddly toy lion and for every game, a different player would be sort of holding it and they'd kind of pass it around. They'd be oh, you know, who's got the line today kind of thing. And I always remember after that Iceland game, I was kind of wondering who would who would be tasked with the responsibility of carrying the lion through the mixer because it had been this like happy lion. It had been a symbol of hope and optimism and national pride and now it was a sad lion. And it was just this like random like England coach who was kind of like dragging it like by the tail sort of thing. Um, but then since then, and, and you know, I suppose starting with the campaign that, that led to the World Cup semi-finals in 2018, it's been much more positive with England. Doors open, much more sort of friendly. So that was quite a big, quite a big turning. More point. lions. <laughs> yeah. Going back to that press conference, the Roy Hodgson press conference, where I think he was flanked by Martin Glenn from the CEO of the, the FA, um, and that, there was this assumption within the FA that. They they would make a, an appointment in good time. They, they they'd consider their options, and in the meantime, Gareth Southgate will take over on an interim basis. And if we haven't made a, a permanent point, appointment by the start of the new season, then Gareth Southgate will just look after those games for us. It's not a problem. He's he's in situ, he's in house. It's it'll, it'll be absolutely fine. Gareth will agree to that. There was this assumption this was what was going to happen, and and yet two days later, Gareth Southgate had made it clear that. Hold on, I'm not going to be some kind of interim here. I'm not going to. I don't want this job on a. It's at the moment. It's a poison chalice, and obviously they they, they ended up going down the Sam Allardyce route for one match or whatever it was, one match. And Southgate then gets appointed after that on an interim basis. But 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 there was this period where no one wanted anything to do with it, and it was it was a legacy of that that horrible mistrust between. Between media and FA and 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 the England setup and the and the coaching staff and the players and it was everything was dysfunctional. Nothing was working in sync at all. And and Southgate, to his credit, and this is why I think we're all slightly taken aback by the reaction to the four-nil home defeat against Hungary. Is that he has he has healed those rifts and he's got us moving in in the, in one right direction. And personally. Losing a few Nations League games where the players are patently 
knackered at the end of a well not just one season but probably two or three covid covid affected seasons to me doesn't shouldn't mean anything for as far as his future is concerned he should definitely be the man to take him into the world cup and hopefully do well there the thing is these players aren't going to get much of a break yeah pre-seasons what they start today players are back today <laughs> premier league clubs are back today <laughs> Which is mad because Fabio Capello at the moment is on this uh, sort of, he, he keeps saying, yeah, England, I think they're going to win the World Cup or because, you know, typically, you know, they, they don't have a winter break. They get to the summer, they're knackered. This time it's a winter World Cup. They're going to go into it. They're going to be you know, as fit, healthy in kind of as peak condition as possible. Um, so this has to be England's year is what he keeps saying. And yet, I'm not sure they're going to have much more of a rest, really. When you look at the the match day calendar, particularly if you're a top English player playing for one of the top six clubs, you're going to be playing 21 games, maybe even more with Carabao. I don't know when what the Carabao fixture or that sort of thing is before the World Cup. It's like playing two-thirds of the season already. We'll see what happens. Anyway, next up, we do a bit of a dive into some glorious Premier League history and then get James Horncastle's favourite World Cup. The Athletic's summer homework is basically running down the Premier League's top 50 individual performances ever. Today, Monday 27th of June, we've reached 37. And it's a pretty unique entry. Phil Jagielka for Sheffield United in the Blades 1-0 win over Arsenal in 2006. Good Arsenal. Remember, they were kind of Champions League finals finalists that that. Uh, previous summer uh, but the unique thing about this performance from Jagielka was Tom Williams uh, he played in goal for the last half an hour or so he played in goal mm. and really well and really well uh, Paddy Kenny had pulled a thigh muscle taking a goal kick there was no goalkeeper on the bench for Neil Warnock's side so basically Jagielka donned his gloves and they were his own gloves and went in and kept a clean sheet. Hang on, why did, why did he turn up with his own gloves? Did he? Because this was the thing. This was the thing. Uh, Warnock didn't like bringing reserve keepers on the bench because he felt it was a waste of one of his substitutes. So he had instructed the goalkeeping staff to make sure that Jagielka was included in their training exercises every now and then because he plainly had a bit of a knack for being between the posts and uh, he enjoyed it as well Neil made sure Jags came in and trained with the keepers two or three times a month uh, says uh, goalkeeping uh, coach I think he was Andy Leaning and this is from The Athletic uh, funnily enough he constantly be on to me have you done anything with Jags lately make sure you keep him on top of this in case he is needed and lo and behold they did and he, he was oh, the sweeper keeper England could have had well indeed so Indeed so. Anyway, that was number 37 of the Premier League's top 50 individual performances ever. And that's how the Athletics filling the summer days. We, though, at Totally, are doing favourite World Cups. Derek says, can we get more classic World Cups? Yes, Derek. That's very much on the agenda. We mentioned the 1990 World Cup. Italia 90, to give it its official title in our, our last show. And we mentioned one or two of the kind of criticisms of that tournament. Spuds in water leading a chorus of of objections from listeners. So I've never bought into the hip, hipster criticism of Italia 90. When did top quality defending become dull? Italia 90 is the greatest in history. Or is it? James Horncastle, what would you say is the greatest World Cup in history? 
<laughs> well, it's personal, isn't it? I mean, it was it yeah. was USA '94 for me because ultimately I was aware of Italian '90, but I was still too young, really, to appreciate it in in the way that a lot of people uh, do. Um, and you know, it, I would say it played a big part in my football identity because uh, England didn't qualify, and Italy did. The drama around that Italy team was one of the main stories of the of the tournament with kind of Ray Houghton and his cartwheels at Giant Stadium in New York. Uh, all of a sudden, Italy, one of the favourites at risk of going out, uh, kind of really kind of plodded their way through the group. You know, you think of uh, the Norway game, Baggio being taken off by Arrigo Sacchi, him calling him crazy, madman for doing it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, sort of Baggio taking that tournament by the scruff of the neck, which is what all World Cups need. They need a player to basically take over. He did that. Apart from that, I mean, just, you know, one of the iconic World Cup celebrations, you, know, you think of Bebeto, the baby rocking kind of thing. Mm. Uh, players who look like they're in their 50s getting to uh, World Cup, what, semifinals, Bulgaria, Lechkov, Stoichkov, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, you know, the Germans not doing as well. Uh, as, as as they had done before, uh, so yeah, you even had Jorge Campos in the in in his in his goalkeeper mm. thing. Escobar, Colombia, the own goal. We've all seen the great documentary Two Escobars. Diana Ross missing a penalty. Iconic, yeah. I was excited actually watching the draw for the uh, for the next World Cup. Yes, uh, and, and, and the one after, and, yeah, the locations: Mexico and North America. Hey, was the Pontiac Silverdome in Detroit? Was that drawn out as one of the venues for the <laughs> the World Cup after uh, this I, one? That was the venue for the first ever World Cup match to be played indoors. One of the many kind of record-breaking features of USA '94. It also featured the oldest player ever to score a World Cup uh, goal. That was Roger Miller, the great Oleg Selenko, and in as that well, same, remember. Exactly in the same game, yeah. Russia against Cameroon. What did Selenko do, James Horncastle? Uh, well, he was top scorer. Did he score how many goals did he score in that game? He scored five, five. goals in that there game. No one's ever beaten that. The tournament also featured one of the best World Cup goals ever. They say, Sayed Al Oweran, and he did of Saudi Arabia against Belgium. Not for me. And a Maradona against England S. Not for me, no. No. He, <laughs> Why ba not, he Tom? basically loses. I mean, I, like obviously in the context Saudi Arabia scoring a great goal at the World Cup, like I get it, I get it. Yeah. But if you actually look at the goal, mm. he loses control of the ball um, on the edge of the penalty area and only um, avoids being dispossessed because the nearest defender turns his back at that point so for me it doesn't it doesn't quite pass the the great world cup goals test but i mean there were some like genuine oh, great world Hadji. cup goals at this tournament Hadji the Hadji from goal. from yeah. the left hand touchline james mentioned jordan lechkov the diving header uh, against against germany in the semi finals the maradona mm. goal i mean obviously we think about maradona yeah. at this world cup and the ephedrine ban and you know and him being him being led off the pitch and the crazy celebration but the goal that spawned the crazy celebration was fantastic and and you know, was was Maradona's last World Cup goal? Yeah, remarkably, wasn't it? What do you think, Dom? Was it any good though as a tournament? What's your feeling? <laughs> say no, say no, just just to mix it up. I, <laughs> I I think I I think I enjoyed it. I can't really remember. I was a student back then. So the final was not the a great. Final, final was awful. 120 minutes of goalless action, and then the, the penalty shootout obviously had the drama. I'm also looking at. I mean, I'm sure this pro maybe this happens all the time, but the Republic of Ireland group 
had mm. Mexico, Italy, and Norway in it. They all finished with four points. Does that is is that is that unusual for a fourteen group to ev- everybody have identical records apart from goals scored? This is where we need Duncan Alexander. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Italy yeah. only snuck through Pretty- in third place as one of the uh, third place yeah. teams. So. I remember the Sweden team being good. Yeah, they finished well, third, with... didn't they? I think. And the yeah. Dutch side as well. And Romania as well, because Romania, of course, who picked Wales to, to World Cup qualification um, and turned out to be really good. And then, you know, the next thing we had, um, you know, almost half the Romania team playing in the, in the Premier League. And that was, uh, that was the first sort of first glimpse of them that we'd, that we'd had. Well, this was one of the interesting effects of that World Cup in that you saw so many stars arriving. And I think this was the first time that we'd really seen a ma- mass influx in, in quite that volume from of successful World Cup stars. The other big knock-on knock effect was that you had the, the MLS began two years after. I mean, it, it had already been planned, but I think the impact on soccer in the United States was was pretty massive. This is the case that they've made for the next World Cup and this. Right. <laughs> This recent Apple partnership with MLS, which you know, is is actually pretty exciting, but you know, I, I, I'm not going to be patronising to the to MLS. I think it's it's already a a very good, exciting actually league to follow, which is transitioned. It's, in some respects, it's very interesting to see Chiellini and Bale go to to LAFC because for the last few years, it's been about getting some exciting South Central American players early in their careers to come come and play there. Um, some real kind of football first stadia that has been built. Yeah, okay, maybe it it, it got people excited for for football in the World Cup. But I think going to the next one, the US is it is becoming a football country in some in in, in a to much greater degree than it I suppose was in '94 and then was subsequently after. So, mm. well, looking forward to that. Just on '94 though. I'm, my recollections, I think, are heavily coloured by the final, but also watching it in Italy where, and this was pretty extraordinary, a large proportion of the population were actually supporting Brazil in the final because they could not bear the idea of Arrigo Sacchi coming back with the World Cup trophy. So much was he disliked so actively, including some famous players. I mean, we won't name names, but you know, one or two went on the record at the time saying, yeah, I rooted for Brazil in the final. And they, they then backtracked a bit, but we know, we know. Anyway, yeah, Arrigo Sacchi, footballing mastermind at that, but not a popular man as Italy manager. Interesting, you mentioned Gareth Southgate, you know, what, what they wouldn't give to have the levels of success that Sacchi, that, that Sacchi enjoyed at the helm of the Azzurri. Now, you know, be careful what you wish for, supporters of your national team. Mm. Nice to have a little lesson to take away from today's podcast. Hasn't all been wasted, Tom Williams. <laughs> Yeah, doing doing our little bit, uh, you know, to educate educate the listenership. Very good. So to sum up on on USA '94, James, you liked it because you were too young to know any better. <laughs> Tom, I suspect the same is true for you. I remember it as being quite a no. A, I a, I yeah. my my first World Cup was Italia '90. That was the start okay. of my football love affair. I was only six. But I do have very precious memories of that World Cup. And yeah, USC 94, I guess the absence of, of home nations teams meant that there wasn't quite as much focus on it and, and perhaps not quite as much engagement. Um, so yeah, I, I, it, it holds a slightly less less precious place in my memories than, 
than Italia 90. But, you know, an exciting right. tournament, great theme tune uh, on the BBC coverage, uh, which which never fails to take oh, yeah? me back whenever I hear it. America, no? From West Side yes. Story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Felt like it was felt like it was a bigger deal the theme music in it. I guess because it was it was the yeah. World Cup after you know Italia '90 and Pavarotti etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had Faure's Requiem, wasn't it, in '98? And then I can't remember anymore. I think best BBC studio in '98. That was that was excellent. In and Paris, of course, yeah. Because you worked the RAC building, mm. and of course you worked for. Didn't you do BBC World Cup '98? Yeah, memorably, memorably. <laughs> <laughs> I, seek out. Seek out my half-time hit for one of France's group games. I want to say Saudi Arabia. Tom, you'll remember. But anyway, Des Lynham uh, throws to me. I'm in a, a restaurant in Lyon because reasons. And uh, I've got a group of French supporters about to give their opinion on the first half. It comes to us live. I throw the first question to them and it emerges no one can speak English. Oh, oh. <laughs> Anyway, so we had, I don't know how long the link went on for, several of my years, several years of my life were involved in it. Eventually it went back to Des who kind of chuckled and, and, and I was never seen on the Beeb again. So. There you go. Wow. Still, eh? Still. Um, anyway, so yeah, USA 94, Tom says, mm, maybe. I think the context of it, the fact that it was in America of all places, which certainly in the build-up people felt was not where you hold a World Cup. And as it turned out, we were wrong. We had the biggest attendances, both in terms of per game and also for the tournament as a whole, which given that there were fewer teams in those days is pretty remarkable. The, the biggest attendances that we've ever had. So you know, maybe, maybe our similar misgivings about some aspects of the upcoming World Cup will also prove to be unfounded. We shall see. Dom, do you want a final word on USA 94 before we press stop? <laughs> no, Tom, Dom doesn't want a final word. <laughs> Listener, you're of the same opinion, so we'll let you go about your busy, your busy day, and but urge you to rejoin us again on Thursday when someone else will be opining about some adolescent tournament that they once enjoyed, and we'll be bringing you all the latest from the transfer front and other stuff as well. Looking forward to that. Tom, Dom, James, and special guest, producer Steve, many thanks for being with us today. Listener, thank you too. We'll catch up with you Thursday. And now from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Paddy Power.